I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is You Can't Make This Up. You Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary series, American Nightmare. I believe him and I believe him in my heart, but nobody in fucking North America is going to believe this story. Today, we're talking to filmmakers Felicity Morris and Bernadette Higgins. When Aaron Quinn reported his girlfriend had been kidnapped in an outrageous home invasion, police suspected he was covering up a crime. Then, when Denise Huskins turned up at her parents' doorstep days later, telling an even more elaborate tale about her abduction, they accused the couple of creating a hoax, one straight out of Hollywood. But miles away, a detective investigating an unrelated case discovered a single strand of hair that would tie the sensational cases together. In American Nightmare, Denise and Aaron tell the story of the crime they suffered, the humiliation they endured, and their quest for justice. It unravels the consequences of our cultural rush to judgment and what happens when law enforcement decides the truth can't possibly be true. There has not been one discrepancy in her story. How can you possibly believe she's lying? And he says to me, haven't you seen the movie Gone Girl? And I'm joined by filmmakers Felicity Morris and Bernadette Higgins. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you. Thank you. So you have extensive interviews with Aaron Quinn and Denise Huskins about their experience in this story. I'm curious, how did you convince them to participate? Were they initially reluctant or were they excited to tell their story? Felicity? I think that, you know, Denise and Aaron um, had written a book um, in the years after all of this happened. And so, you know, they've always been very keen for their story to be told for what they experienced at the hands of the Vallejo police to be out there in the world. Um, And so when Raw, the production company that we were working for, approached them about, you know, making this for a a Netflix documentary series, fortunately, they were happy to be involved and, you know, brilliant collaborators in the process for us. So, Bernie, can you just remind us, walk us very briefly through what happened in those very early morning hours of March 23rd, 2015? Well, essentially, it was a night that kind of started like any other Sunday night. They went to bed about midnight and then got woken up at 3 a.m. having torches shown in their face and tasers going off and a sense of at least three people being in the room with them. And then... It kind of all just went haywire from there, but that was happening in the kind of the, the dead of night and certainly very unexpected in, in a neighborhood like theirs. So you give the viewer of that afternoon after Aaron's phone call, 911 call, um, from the police point of view. 
uh, notably through their body cam footage. And that adds this layer of, you know, urgency and sort of outside point of view of the story. And I'm just curious about the choice to begin the documentary that way. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I didn't know about this story beforehand. I don't know how because I'm a true crime person, but I didn't know. And it really added this sense of, you know, in the momentness. And I'm, I'm curious about that filmmaking decision. Can you talk about that? It was actually Aaron who had got hold of all of the police archive. You know, they've been sort of campaigning for many years to kind of get to the bottom of what happened here and how everything sort of went so wrong for them at the hands of the police. And there's obviously a lot of kind of narrative plumbing, I think, that goes into these films, you know, how to structure the story, how information should flow so that the story's sort of told in the most impactful and powerful way. And, you know, we spent weeks trying to figure this out. And what we landed on is sort of telling the story in real time. So keeping things in present tense to make sure that audiences today were able to interrogate the events as they unfolded. So we chose to combine both the police interrogation of Aaron and the body cam footage and so on and what he experienced at the hands of the police with also obviously Aaron in interview sort of explaining the events so that the audience can sit there and hear what was explained and what was told to the police at the time. I feel Denise on top of me. I can feel her pulling on the zip tie. Then he puts on swim goggles over my head. They're blacked out. He's blindfolding us. I sit up and I feel this kind of foam headphones over my ears. And then this music starts playing. You know, all the while we're kind of was thinking with this story that we wanted to make sure that we challenged audiences to think about what it is that they're hearing, what it is that they're being told, this sort of extraordinary set of events and how it unfolded. So, Bernie, I'm curious because... I think from the outsider's point of view, there are a lot of things working against Aaron, right? In any other case, it might look like, you know, the boyfriend covering up a murder potentially, but he is extremely forthright with Detective Matt Mustard when he goes in for that interview. I'm curious, you know, from your point of view, why you think the police, in particular Detective Matt Mustard, had this target lock on Aaron because he didn't really seem to be open to any other possibilities Well, I think, uh, you know, they're obviously very heavily influenced by the fact that in the majority of cases of female murder, it was the boyfriend or the husband that did it. Um, Those are just depressing statistics that are, you know, proven year after year after year. However, you know, you can also put it down to, you know, just lazy detective work and and narrow mindedness and just having very much that kind of tunnel vision. You can understand the logic of it. You know, it didn't look good for Aaron. You know, there was evidence of him trying to get back with his ex, of perhaps not being fully committed to this relationship, of Denise having found him out. And, you know, they didn't know Aaron very well. Um, So you can understand why that should definitely have been a line of inquiry. And Aaron would admit that himself. Where they fell down as detectives and investigators is that that was their only line of inquiry. Um, And that's really where the, the injustice came into play here. Because, yes, of course he should have been a suspect, but there were other clues to follow up on that were just willfully ignored. And that's where the police work really comes under fire through the series because there were things that they should have been doing that they were simply neglecting to do. 
you know, we have seen time and time again examples of how these guys, these kind of all-American men that nobody was suspected of, are capable of committing heinous crimes about the women they profess to love. And that was something that we did want to play with with the audience as well, which is why we wanted the audience to very much have the same experience as Matt Mustard did of Aaron's interrogation tape, so that they were also given an opportunity to think, do we believe this guy? Is this a believable story? But, you know, once you go through the investigation itself, there was just so many clues that were willfully ignored. Uh, and that's really where the where the police fell down. And that's where, you know, it should put a shudder through all of us, surely, to think that that's how investigations are being carried out. And really what they what they were trying to do right from the start, um, I mean, you can see it in the tapes as Aaron's telling the story. They're not really taking any notes is to get a confession, you know, right from the top, that seemed to be their priority is get a confession from this guy. You know, let's get the FBI in, do a lie detector test, tell him he's failed it and get the confession. Yeah. And when it becomes clear that he is a suspect after that FBI agent, you know, lies to him, which you are allowed to do here in the States if you're a law enforcement agent and lie and say that he failed it miserably, he finally asks for a lawyer and he gets this pair of appears to me awesome lawyers. He tells them the same story he tells the cops and they believe him. And they say, you know, this sounds crazy. Like no one in America is going to believe you, but we do. Why do you think his lawyers believed him? Because that was amazing to me. For, well, for, the, for a start, they weren't already convinced that they shouldn't believe him. So they were already starting from a much more open, open-minded point of view. The fact that there is a potential motive means that if Denise turns up dead, they're going to nail him. Dan Russo comes up to me away from your shot. What do you think? What do you think? Is he believable? And I said, Dan, I believe him. And also, you know, they have had many, many criminals come through their doors. Um, you know, Dan Russo, I think, had been practicing law in, in Vallejo for about 50 years at this stage. And he just had a gut instinct about uh, Aaron. You know, he says himself, you know, my gut instinct's been wrong before, but something in me just thought, you know, this kid's telling the truth. There's a possibility, at least, that he's telling the truth. And, you know, I think a lot of the time you do just have to go with gut instinct. And they just believed him. They find him to be a believable person. And I also think that perhaps Aaron... You know, he was very regimented in how he told the story again and again. And they really took notice of the fact that he never missed a beat in the story. And it's very, very difficult to tell the same lie again and again and again, especially when it's supposed to have been in the Vallejo PD's point of view, perhaps like some kind of um, an impulsive crime for Aaron to have got a story such as the one that he told with the level of detail and to get it right again and again and again. They, as lawyers, are used to hearing people give evidence and they, you know, they miss this section or this bit changes. And that's when they think, OK, this, is, this isn't based in truth because they can't actually remember what they said the last time. Felicity, there are some major twists. And the biggest one is that Denise turns up at her parents' house seemingly unharmed. And of course, people are like, what kind of kidnapper does a door-to-door delivery service of a victim? But it's not much later that the police, the media are accusing this couple of a hoax. Where did this idea that this whole thing was inspired by the movie Gone Girl originate? That was something that we really tried to find out. You know, we had all of the police press meetings and we were kind of watching the rushes, you know, can we hear a murmur 
of Gone Girl being mentioned. So I don't know exactly where that began, but I think that very much inside those walls of the Vallejo Police Department, you know, that was something that had come up. And then once that idea like, hey, this sounds like the movie Gone Girl, which had just come out the year before, once that idea started being, you know, mentioned and we don't sort of cover it in the film, but the cops said the same thing to Denise's family when they started interviewing her as well. You know, do you do you think that she could be behind this? Do you think that she's the real gongle? This was all before they had even spoken to Denise. It was just something that kind of came out, but we don't know who was the first person to sort of compare Denise to the Rosamund Pike character in Gone Girl. Yeah, it was really something to see all these journalists doing that as well. You know, it was sort of this cascading event. But then, of course, at the end of episode one, we sort of get the reveal that you speak to Denise. Uh, a lot happens in that first episode. You've got Aaron and the cops and the parents and the lawyers, everybody giving their point of view. And in the second episode, there's something like 20 uninterrupted minutes of Denise telling her story. And I think most documentaries don't have the confidence to let someone tell their story uninterrupted in that way. And I'm wondering in the editing room how those decisions were made. Are you discussing whether or not you had enough, whether or not you needed more of her, or like was she just such a compelling storyteller that you were like, keep it on Denise. Like she is the right person to do this. Like the victim should speak for herself. Yeah, I mean, that was actually a decision that we made before we got into the edit. We do a lot of research interviews ahead of ever getting anyone on camera. And what we found during our hours and hours of talking to Denise was that we were utterly spellbound by her uh, when she was retelling us what had happened, you know, and that was just her sitting on a Zoom with us. And you could have heard a pin drop between us while we were listening to her testimony of what had happened. And that was really what gave us the idea and the confidence to see through that, that Denise can hold this. And I pull those suctioned goggles off of my eyes for the first time in over half a day. Then I look in the mirror and I'm just so detached. Like, I don't, I don't know who that is in front of, you know, I just see. When I take a shower and I just kind of curl up in a ball with the water beating over me, the water is just going down and just feels like every little bit of hope is going down with it. It's so rare to have an opportunity to talk to somebody who's been through an experience like this. So just to bear witness to that is utterly compelling. And we just mm -hmm. didn't feel that we needed distraction. And we actually didn't think it would be fair to Denise to have that distraction. You know, if she's prepared to sit and relive it with us, then the least we can do is allow her to do that. And obviously, you know, we had to cut it. So, you know, like you say, it you know, got to about 20 minutes and it could have been much, much longer. And obviously the initial telling of it during the research chat was, was much, much longer. So it was deciding, mm -hmm. you know, what parts to leave in, what parts to take out, but making sure that we really felt that the audience understood as much as possible from her perspective what that experience had been like for her. And when we were in the we were in the edit, obviously we had sort of all of the interviews out uh, there, and then you film your visualizations. They're the last things that you do. So it was actually our DP 
sort of said, well, how about you guys, you know, let's try just cutting together Denise all from her interview. And we'd sort of planned when we did Denise's interview, we moved the cameras around so that we had all of these different angles so that we could therefore live in these interviews for longer, cinematically speaking, I guess. And so we cut together all of Denise's captivity story as one long just interview with Denise. And that allowed us to kind of look, you know, well, where do we need to really break away? And we can Mm. then therefore be, you know, really selective with the visualizations that we were then filming and, you know, sort of never at any point use what she went through as a kind of exploitative crutch or, you know, undermine the gravity of the topic or do a disservice to her. Yeah. I mean, it was very restrained. And I will say really excellent job conveying the claustrophobia of the experience and in a very restrained and respectful way. That is how it came across. You know, one of the things that she talks about when she's in captivity, it's it's really astonishing to me, these descriptions of her abductor's behavior. And you have other victims talking about this, too. It's like this sick theater. He has this very elaborate storytelling mind. And he even has this elaborate excuse for why he's going to sexually assault her. I mean, I'm not asking you to get inside the mind, obviously, of a criminal, but what do you make of this? I mean, do you have any sense of of what it is that drives this elaborate world building that this guy is doing during this abduction? I mean, obviously, we're not psychologists and we haven't done any studies of Matthew Muller, but it seems like what he was trying to create was almost a full relationship. You know, he was wanting to have the girlfriend experience. He yeah. was in deep denial about the fact that he was a rapist. I'm sure he would consider, he'd like to consider himself as something very different to that. You know, he's a very, he's a Harvard educated ex-military man. So I think he probably actually looks down on rapists and wouldn't consider himself to be in the same category as them. So I would imagine that a lot of this is actually coming from a desire to feel that he's he's something different and that's why he wanted to pretend that he was being forced into it as well. You know, I'm I'm not a bad guy. I have to do this. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I'll just give you my observation is that there does seem to be this escalating pattern with him and it does seem like, you know, he was a peeping Tom and then he was doing home invasions and then he did this abduction and it seems like some escalation was being interrupted. I think that's probably fair to say. And that was the extraordinary thing. When he was doing those peeping Tom activities, when he was being the peeping Tom of Mare Island, you know, there were people in the community who had gone to the police again and again and again. They'd found where he lived. They knew his name. And from what we can tell, there was no follow-up done. And so here's a man who was therefore allowed, you know, slip through the net. He was allowed to escalate and... You know, that was obviously just completely devastating for Denise and for the other women that he targeted. So I want to talk about Misty Caruso, the new detective who really made it her mission to try to connect this home invasion case with the hair that she found and really wanted to find this other victim. She was a long way, you know, from where Denise and Aaron were when when the abduction happened. Can you talk a little bit about how she made that connection and the work that that took and, and her determination there? You know, it was Misty's first day as a detective when she uh, was called up to be part of the raid of the cabin in Lake Tahoe. We were so lucky with her, really, that obviously she's such a brilliant interviewee. 
She's got her sort of bright blue sparkling eyes. Um, she's not your kind of procedural cop. And, you know, she was very um, happy to talk about her emotional experience in this case. You know, Misty became a cop because of the fact that one of her friends had been um, sexually assaulted and she saw how amazing the police were in that case. And that sort of gave her the impetus to be a detective herself. She was working in Safeway, I think, before that. And so on her first day of detective, she obviously is part of the, you know, the raid on this house. And as soon as she gets in there, I think her spidey senses just go up. I mean, you see the house in the film, you can kind of see the mess, the debris left over. And as they're going through all of this mess, she finds this pair of goggles, blacked out swim goggles and the single strand of blonde hair. And the victims in the case that she was investigating, that she was looking into were brunette. So at that point, she just knew, she thinks she just felt it in her bones that there was somebody else out there, another victim out there. And he stops me and says, hmm, have you heard of the Mare Island Creeper? And I thought to myself, where is Mare Island? And who's the creeper? They had all the evidence against Matthew Muller for the Dublin case, but Misty took it upon herself to basically work tirelessly to follow the evidence to then make her way gradually back to Denise by speaking to people, by looking at police records, by exploring Matthew Muller's criminal past. You know, had it not have been for Misty and for the work that she did, you know, Denise and Aaron say, we have no idea where we would be now to the world. We would still be known as hoaxers. They would never have been vindicated they say, you know, they trust law enforcement. Aaron's brother works for the FBI. In all of the time, they were, you know, just looking for a detective, looking for a cop who would listen to them and who would take their story seriously. And they feel very, very fortunate to have had Misty Caruso on, on the case. So you have a very important voice in the series, and that's a woman named Tracy who was nearly raped by Muller in an earlier incident. Bernie, can you tell me why she wanted to share her story? She, yeah, she, she took some convincing. She hadn't gone public before. So we spent a lot of time talking to her on the phone at, ahead of time to kind of explain to her what our vision for the series was, you know, why we felt it was important to, to hear her story, to hear Denise's story, to give a voice of people who have been, you know, willfully ignored before because that was kind of what Tracy's motivation was in, in, in telling her story, really. As we look at in the series, she was not believed. When the police arrived, an officer asked me, are you sure you just didn't have a bad dream? And I, I just remember saying, well, no, I, I, it wasn't a dream. How would I have gotten these marks if it was a dream? No, this is real. Like, look, this really happened to me. You know, the, the fact that the tendency is to not believe female victims of sexual assault is just disgusting. Why is that where we start? Rather than believing somebody, why don't we suspect the truth? There were clues, and had they been followed up on, maybe this wouldn't have happened to Denise. So it's also to serve as an example of the dangers that happen when women aren't believed. These are escalating crimes. These are confidence-growing crimes. This is what I need to do next time, or this is the kind of victim that I need to be finding. So perhaps if she'd been taken more seriously and Matthew Muller had been investigated, he never would have got to Denise that night. We'll never know, but there should have been a line of investigation followed that wasn't. Hmm. You know, one of the things that surprised me was after Denise came back, 
the police make this false report accusation without having spoken to her. They do it in the form of a press conference initially. You know, you can say they're working off this bad theory, but they just seem to be driven by something else. I mean, maybe frustration by the people involved. I mean, Felicity, what do you think drove the police to do it in that way so publicly without having actually done all of the due diligence of having spoken to the people involved yet? I mean, that was wild to me. Yeah, I mean, it's just totally shocking that, you know, within 12 hours of Denise's release that they would go on national television and call her a hoaxer without having even spoken to her. None of the claims has been substantiated. And I can go, I could go one step further to say this. Mr. Quinn and Ms. Huskins has plundered valuable resources away from our community. Denise, once she was released, she you know, became aware, obviously, because of her family telling her that this story is out there in the press, that you're a hoaxer. And so, you know, her advice was basically get yourself a lawyer, speak to the lawyer, get him to help you. Um, You know, here's a victim of a crime that essentially needed a lawyer rather than feeling like she could just go to the police and sort of tell them what had happened. It was kind of, these guys are going to come down on you and anything that you say, anything that you say that isn't sort of factually correct or, you know, misremembered or whatever, they will use against you to prove their point, to prove their theory that you are a liar and a hoaxer. You know, that's the most shocking part of this is that she was interviewed, yes, by the police in Huntington Beach, but thereafter the Vallejo Police Department went on national television and called her a liar before they had had the opportunity to speak to her. They still believe through their tunnel vision because of the fact that their decision had already been made at the point that Aaron had walked into that police station that a crime had not happened here and that they chose to believe a lie rather than believing and following the evidence to uncover what the truth was in this story. I'm curious, Felicity, you know, you both reviewed all the contemporaneous news footage. Was the coverage more intense when the narrative that she staged a hoax or when Mueller's arrest proved that she was telling the truth? Oh, no, totally. When, you know, this is the real life gone girl and all of that news was breaking, that was when, you know, there was the most uh, news archive for us to explore and, and use in the film. You know, this is a big reason why Denise and Aaron want to tell their story on this platform is because, you know, I think for a lot of people who may have heard about this story, they kind of left it at the point that they were known as hoaxes because of the fact that there were only, you know, a handful of journalists that really followed this case through to the end. Um, You know, when we were looking at archive covering the court case, covering Matthew Muller's arrest, there really wasn't as much material there as there was at the point at which Denise's face was plastered all over the news as being the real life gone girl. I have to ask, because when you look at Mueller's actions, they all read like things that somebody would actually do if they were making up an elaborate hoax. I mean, they they do. I mean, the camera on the wall, the tape on the floor, the, the story about the goggles with the tape, even the email ordering the cops to apologize to Denise that she's telling the truth. I mean, I was watching that and I'm like, that's kind of what someone would do if they were <laughs> if they were doing a hoax. It made the story even wilder, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Interestingly, it, it, it takes place. This story takes place in the same area as the, the Zodiac killer. 
Hmm. who did the same thing, you know, sending these taunting letters to the police. Maybe he took his inspiration from that. Who knows? You know, he said a lot of things to Denise during her captivity, which alluded to the fact that he thought that they had, you know, developed a special bond and he really had tried to create this almost protective dynamic between them, which was just perverse, given that he was the person causing her so much pain and trauma. So again, I think it potentially just plays into the fact that he desperately wants to be seen as the good guy you know like I oh you know I may have done this terrible thing but I'm not going to let you be blamed for it on top of everything else that's probably the the top level he's telling himself but otherwise also you know he's all got some personality disorders going on there so it may have been that he simply was annoyed that he wasn't getting credit for his work but at the point at which those emails were being received by Henry Lee and then being sent to the police the question should have been asked Look at Denise and Aaron, these two physiotherapists. They're not on Instagram. They don't have a desire to be public in any way. So why? What would be the motivation of these two people to be perpetrating a hoax that would garner national and global media attention? That should have been the question that was asked at the point at which, you know, these sensational emails were then being sent to newspapers And it wasn't. It was, oh, we're going to look again at the same theory that we've been peddling for many months and blame these on Denise and Aaron again. Yeah. I mean, did Denise and Aaron have any sense of why them? I mean, I I don't want to make this about, you know, Mueller's psychology, but, you know, he he knew who was living in the house or who wasn't living in the house or he thought his ex-fiance was living in the house and he seemed to have, you know, he knew Aaron's email address. Do, do they have a sense of, of why they were targeted or is that just still an unknown? Proximity, we think. Yeah. It's just because they were all, they were all on Mare Island. And, you know, that's where he was doing his peeping Tom oh. antics as well. It was all within the same neighborhood, within the same kind of four or five blocks. So we think that he just spotted them and just as much by chance as that, really. That's interesting. If you look at the house the location of Aaron's home, it backs on to sort of marshland. So there's a kind of easy escape route out. And then when you look at the house in Dublin, it's very similar in the way that the back garden backs onto marshland. And in the weeks before it had all happened, Aaron remembered seeing sort of drones in the air. He got this feeling that someone had been in his home and he thought he was being, you know, paranoid and sort of dismissed it. You know, I think that you know, perhaps Muller had been in the home before and had been sort of scoping it out and and figuring out. But Muller had been watching. He had obviously seen a a blonde female coming and going and so set his sight on their property. Hmm. So at one point in the film, you know, we hear Denise and Aaron say that they believe there's more than one perpetrator in this crime. Is that something that they still believe is true? I'm just curious about that because, you know, Mueller is the only person who's been arrested. And we saw the dummy in his car. I, I couldn't help but wonder if perhaps he used that to create an illusion of more people. He had the radio. He would say we. Was this an illusion that he created, you think? I think it's really difficult to know because this case was never properly investigated. And, you know, Denise and Aaron recall seeing more than one, I think they saw three sets of feet the night of the home invasion. They believe that they saw more than one person that night. And, you know, when you talk to them about it, it's a case of, well, how do we know? Because it's never been investigated. So there's no way of knowing for sure whether or not 
there are other people involved in this. There are, were other people there that night. It's, it's a big question mark. And I think that Denise and Aaron are kind of resolved to accept that there will be many question marks over this for them and that they have to sort of just try and move on with their lives because you can drive yourself crazy trying to find all of the answers when, you know, there's still police records, there's still FBI records that they can't get their hands on to kind of try and uncover the truth for themselves. Because the key thing is they were right about every other thing. There were a lot of people who fueled the story that Denise and Aaron committed a hoax, and one of them was reporter Henry Lee. But in hindsight, he says he feels terrible about adding to their pain. Seeing Denise and Aaron out in public, they're not saying anything, but their emotions spoke volumes. I regret my part in this because they went through hell. We're thinking that we're covering the story, the salacious story of a lifetime, and it all went horribly wrong. Why do you think it's so hard for the police to say that they feel terrible for adding to this entire thing? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm pondering the question because I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm guessing that they just, maybe they're not sorry. Maybe they just think that any admission of compassion is an admission of guilt and they don't want to go that far. The same reason many people don't apologize for things because to apologize for something is to admit that you did something wrong and they've never really done that. Well, we did see, Bernie, that, you know, they, Aaron and Denise did win a settlement, um, you know, from the police department. Do you think they've fully been held accountable for the way they handled this investigation? Uh, no, not that we're aware of. Yeah, fiscally, they were held accountable, but nobody that we're aware of was ever disciplined for how they treated Denise and Aaron. And in fact, you know, Matt Mustard got Detective of the Year that year, which is insane, given the fact that he didn't really use any detective skills during this crime. So it kind of that felt like an extra slap in the face feeling to them that he should be, you know, rewarded and commended, given the fact that it took another police department, it took Misty to actually solve the crime that he should have been solving. No, they don't think they feel that there's really been any real justice in terms of how they were treated by the police. And it doesn't sound like really any lessons were learned at the Vallejo Police Department. I'm curious, Felicity, you know, if there's any silver lining to this story, you know, I'm putting in air quotes to the silver lining part because that's rough considering what happened to these two. Um, Aaron and Denise did grow much closer. They, you know, worked out any troubles that they may have had and they are married and they started a family. And it seems like a lot of that is because Mueller was caught and they were proven to be right. Do they wonder what things would have been like if that hadn't happened, if, if the world still was doubting them? I think that in terms of their relationship, I think they feel as soon as they were reunited, it feels like Denise and Aaron became this unit, this loving, protective unit where they weren't going to leave each other's side again and where, you know, they were fully aware of the problems that they were having in their relationship early on, but they were willing, obviously, to sort of work together and move past that. And, you know, I think that that's really testament to both of their characters and how, you know, Denise is this extraordinarily empathetic woman. Aaron sort of wrapped his arms around her after she was released. You know, she was really nervous about how he would feel about her knowing these horrifying things had happened to her. And, you know, they both came together. And that was something that was really important for us in the series is that, yes, this is a horrifying crime story, but it's also 
is also a love story. And you see them today. They have these two gorgeous little girls. And that was something that at the end of the series that we really wanted to celebrate was the hope, their resilience, their still being together now and how they sort of just live their lives in their unit and kind of haven't let this define them. You know, they've managed to move on and prioritise one another and, and their girls. And that for us felt really hopeful, which unfortunately so many of these kind of crime stories don't have a sort of, in quotes, happy ending. Well, Felicity Morris and Bernadette Higgins, you've told a riveting story in this series. It's American Nightmare. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to talk about it. It was a real pleasure speaking with both of you. Indeed. Thanks for having us. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Felicity Morris and Bernadette Higgins. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, TV shows, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with friends. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 